We're going to be in Judges chapter 9 today. And before I commence with reading 62 verses, I want to remind you that there are coloring pages, word searches, and crosswords on the back table for all ages. You still have to pretend that you're at least reading along, but, you know, I can't see what everyone's doing. Judges chapter 9 is where we're going to start. We're going to read verse 1 all the way through to the end of Judges 9, and then the first five verses of chapter 10. So I'll give you a moment to get there. It's important that we remember a little bit of where we are in the story of Judges. We are about smack dab in the middle of the book. We are in the middle of our series of finding a king in a kingless kingdom. And today, we're continuing the story of Gideon, even though Gideon has already passed away in the last chapter. This story that is the continuation of Gideon's story revolves all around his son, Abimelech, and his quest to become the king in a kingless kingdom. So without further ado, let's go ahead and read from Judges chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. All the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. The olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go and hold sway over the trees? The tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with, well with Jerubel and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and if you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative, 
If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. Let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. We're going to pause here for a second. We're going to continue reading, but because this is a large section, I want to make sure that we're understanding what's happening here. Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, which is the new name of Gideon, has uh, kind of found some conspirators, some co-conspirators at a city called Shechem. He's gathered them together, and they've paid for him to hire some guys to kill all of Abimelech's brothers, the sons of Gideon. Seventy men have been murdered, except for Jotham. Jotham pops up gives this fable or this parable of sorts about the trees looking for a leader and how they chose unwisely. And he says, look, if you've done the right thing, then good for you. But if not, you're doomed. Then he ran away. So verse 22, we have a time skip here. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. So Abimelech has ruled over Israel illegitimately for three years, and um, Shechem, because of this evil spirit that was sent by who? Did you catch that? God sent an evil spirit. That's kind of interesting. We'll talk about that later. He sends this evil spirit, and the result of that is that the leaders of Shechem deal treacherously with Abimelech. They betray him, and then they actually set up men in ambush against Abimelech, and really anybody else who's going to come around, um, and they rob, rob those people. So they're kind of, after three years of being under the rule of Abimelech, they are ready to be done with him. So verse 26, Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. They went out into the fields and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people would be under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Verse 30. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Abed, his anger was kindled. He sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Abed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise and rush upon the city. When he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Zebul, who is on Abimelech's side, has heard this plot of Gaal, who's just moved into Shechem, the new guy in town, but he says, hey, I'm more of a Shechemite than um, Abimelech is, so why don't you follow me? People seem to like this idea. Zebul has heard this, and so he's revealed it to Abimelech, and they're making a plan. Verse 34. 
So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountains. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. Many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. He looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the town of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a, br a, bunch, a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men of the women, men and women, and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech had died, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubael. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, a son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havarath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kemon. Well, that is the bookend of Gideon's story, the finish of Abimelech's life and his attempt at becoming the king in the kingless kingdom. Let's pray and think about this a little bit further. Our Father, as we have taken a wide look at your word this morning, there is much that we need to hear. There is much that we need to know. And today, Lord, we want to focus on 
what you tell us about the justice that you bring to the earth. Because it is an important thing for us to know the difference between your justice and other attempts at justice. It is necessary for us to look to you today and to be encouraged by what Christ has done for us so that we might live in integrity and good faith before you. So we ask for your help. We ask your spirit to fill us, guide us, teach us, and encourage us to be powerful witnesses for you in our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you have a bulletin with you, we have bulletins again now. That's kind of a cool thing. We didn't have those for a minute. If you have a bulletin, you actually have a little outline of three elements of the nature of the justice of the true king. What does his justice look like? How do we see his justice working in this chapter? The story, as you've seen, follows this guy, Abimelech, who kind of leads Israel as if he is the leader of a mafia. He kind of takes everything for himself He gathers people around him who like him, and he just kind of moves forward with whatever he wants to do. You'll remember, hopefully, from chapter 8, verse 33, that after Gideon had saved the people from Midian, they again did what was was sinful, evil, in the eyes of the Lord, and they began worshiping new gods in verse 33 of chapter 8. It says in that verse that as soon as Gideon died, the people turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. They did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies. So this new God is the God of the covenant, is what they called him. This is, of course, not Yahweh, the true God of the true covenant, but it is an interesting thing to note that they have now devoted themselves to a new false idol who is all about covenant and promise. And in doing so, they have broken their own covenant promise to the true Lord of all. The setting of this is very important, too. This place called Shechem is hopefully familiar in your ears to way back to Genesis chapter 12. If you'd like to know what happened there, you can go there later. Um, This is where Abraham meets with God at one point, where God promises him that he would give him this land. His descendants would dwell there always. So it's very ironic what's going on here is God in Genesis 12 was was revealing, again, the the promise of his covenant, the truth of what he wanted to do for Abraham and for his descendants. And here they have broken that covenant entirely. If you remember the theme verse that comes from chapter 17 and and following, three or four times, I believe, um, we hear this phrase, this authorial narrator comment on the book, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what? Do you remember? What was right in his own eyes. It's a pretty good descriptor for all the characters in this story that we've read so far. Abimelech and his mafia of the leaders of Shechem. Gaal, the guy who tries to come and take the mafia power from Abimelech. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. So let's look at these characters quickly um, as we move forward because it's important that we know all of these. Again, Abimelech is the half-son of Gideon in one sense. He is Gideon's son, but he was the son of a concubine, meaning this was not um, one of Gideon's wives. This is not one who shares the same rank as the other 70 sons of Jerubal, of Gideon. And so when, uh, when we start our story and we see Abimelech already wanting to seize this power, you can kind of understand, even from his sense of identity, 
that he already has a great jealousy and anger towards these brothers, and it seems to be no problem at all for him to murder 70 of his brothers on one stone. Abimelech is a bad dude. He sees that there's no king in Israel, and he says, why couldn't it be me? The leaders from Shechem are totally in with it because they know that Abimelech being only kind of counted as a half-son of Gideon, so to speak, is really one of them. He really belongs to them, and, and he has an in, and he has a plan, and they're going to quickly and foolishly attach themselves to this brumblebush king, this one who is going to lead them to destruction. So that's the leaders of Shechem. Jotham is the last full son of Gideon, okay, a son of one of Gideon's wives, and he actually escapes the murder of his brothers. So then he brings this prophecy almost, this, um, this fable, this parable that we read starting in verse 8. Then you have Gaal who comes in later, verse 26. He's the son of Ebed. He kind of just pops up out of nowhere and becomes a rival to Abimelech. He becomes the rival mafia boss and takes all the power from him um, or attempts to take the power from him. That doesn't work out very well for him because the next character, Zebul, is a leader put in place by Abimelech to kind of oversee things in an area where Abimelech doesn't know what's going on. And of course, he tells on Gaal to Abimelech and they make that plan to take him out. All over this pay, all over this story, we see injustices being done left and right. And so it's important for us to understand some things about the justice of the true king in the kingless kingdom. Firstly, we want to understand that the sovereign justice of the true king is, and this is going to be one of the hardest things to understand about God's justice, it is patient. In this first section of chapter 9, we see that God is waiting for the right time in order to bring the full payment of justice upon Abimelech. How does he decide that? How does he decide when enough is enough and he says, now's the time I'm going to bring justice on you? We don't know. It's all according to his plan. But you can see that he, he is patient because through the 62 verses that we read, Abimelech starts his evil, terrible plan in the beginning and he doesn't get what's coming until, until the very end. In the first 21 verses of our chapter, we see Abimelech's plan start to take shape, and it begins to work out very well for him. This is what he had hoped to see happen. If you remember, do you remember what Abimelech's name means, by the way? It's a statement about his dad. If you know Hebrew, you should know it, right? Ab, Ab is part of that word Abba, meaning father, and Melech is the Hebrew word for king. So Abimelech means my father is king, which is a kind of funny thing to name your kid, isn't it? But Abimelech wants to live up to his name, and so he wants to take the role of the king that, again, remember, is not up for grabs. This is not the book of kings. This is the book of what? Judges. Okay, good. You could at least read it up there, right? The book of Judges is what's going on. Judges are military leaders. They're temporary, not meant to start a dynasty of the son of Gideon is not meant to be a ruler, but he's jumping up to take what he thinks is rightfully his. And it's interesting because what you see in Abimelech's life is that when you take something by force, you should be able to learn through that process that it is not what the Lord wants for you. 
So in order to get this kingship, he has to get around the issue of the 70 brothers that are in the way. Because if there's going to be a king, it's going to come from Gideon's 70 sons. And being 71st in line isn't very promising. Those are the ones who are counted by the family as legitimate. And Abimelech is the son of a concubine. He belongs to the house of his mother in Shechem, not to his father. And that's where he realizes what his true advantage is. He convinces the leaders of Shechem that it would be better to let him rule over them than for 70 sons of Gideon to do it. They agree. He is really one of their own anyhow. So they take how many pieces of silver to give him? 70, one for each of those sons, one of each of those brothers, out of the house of their latest idols, the one that they're choosing to worship this generation. And they give it to him as a sign of solidarity with his plan. Abimelech's mafia is completely set. The biggest challenge in his mind, killing his seven brothers, apparently goes smoothly. This was the biggest hurdle for him. With the money he got from the leaders of Shechem, he hires more muscle for his mafia. And on one stone, he has all his brothers murdered, except for one, this Jothan guy. Somehow little Jothan, the youngest of the legitimate sons, survives. So now we have the illegitimate son versus the baby of the family. Abimelech has been made king by Shechem. Again, not something anyone has a right to give away right now either. And Jotham sends them a message from far away at Mount Gerizim. This fable or a parable of sorts is about trees. Very interesting. Probably at first, well, I'll just admit, at my first read, at my second read, maybe even at my 30th read, I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about here. The three useful trees that reject the request from the other trees rule over us. They ask the vine, they ask um, the fig tree, and and they, they come and they ask, that, why don't you rule over us? And these three trees reject that request, the offer of kingship. And this kind of mirrors what Gideon did last week, if you remember. When they said to Gideon, come and rule over us, Gideon said what? I will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you, right? (laughs) The Lord's going to rule over you. So he's kind of recounting a little bit of what just already happened. Then you get to the bramble or the thorn bush. And this is, of course, the picture of Abimelech. Like the bramble, Abimelech is not useful. Like the bramble, his temper catches fire easily and spreads. Like the bramble, Abimelech makes claims of great destructive power, but lacks the strength to burn down the mighty cedars of Lebanon. It's humorous. It's supposed to be ironic and silly. They've chosen foolishly because they were desperate, the leaders of Shechem were. Abimelech, who is the bramble, makes hollow promises and violent threats. Is that what you want in the one who is going to practice justice as the king over you? Jotham would ask. The explanation given is, if you've done right, then I wish you a long, happy submission to your bramble king. But if you've done wrong, let fire come from Shechem and devour Abimelech, which is, of course, literally what happens. There's a lot of fire in the latter part of the story. You can only run the mafia if you have the influence, if you can live up to your claims and prove yourself a better leader than any others. And ultimately, Abimelech proves that he is not qualified. Which is an interesting thing, because Gideon himself, his father, was not qualified, right? 
He did not have what it took to be what God called him in the first place. You mighty man of valor. And he goes, who am I? I'm the least and the smallest and the worst and the, I have nothing. The same is true of Abimelech. The problem is, is that he doesn't respond in faith to the Lord in his inadequacy. He responds to his sin and leans into it aggressively. Abimelech was not called on by God to be set as a judge. But through murder, he makes himself king. It's a very important thing for us to pick up on, on the life of Abimelech here. He has what he has because he aggressively, violently, sinfully took it. It is not something that God gave him. Did he allow him to have it? Yes. But it was not a gift of God. He did not simply say, if you do all these things, then you'll be able to be king. Abimelech has taken it on his own. This is his idea of justice. And it is skewed by sin. Jotham says you have made the worst choice. Enjoy resting under the shade of the bramble bush. It's a funny picture. A bramble bush is not very tall. In order to enjoy the shade, you're going to have to come very low beneath it. You're going to have to lay down. You're going to have to submit to the bramble bush who is, you know, full of thorns and is easily caught on fire. And in your submission to this false king, you are going to be destroyed, he says to Shechem. You know, in Judges chapter 2 and chapter 6, we saw the Lord lay out the terms of covenant yet again for his people. And he has acted justly towards them by disciplining them these nine chapters over already. The justice of the Lord is patient. At any moment, he could have poured out permanent wrath on his people Israel, or on Shechem, or even just on Abimelech. But he hasn't yet. We know through the story, that he ultimately will. So a question, does his waiting reveal an imperfection in his justice? We would like to see the story end at verse 1 of chapter 9. Abimelech had a bad plan, God stopped him, and it all worked out. That's not how it goes. Is the patience of the Lord's justice a sign of imperfection or weakness in his ability to judge? And of course we need to say, as good Christians, no. But in our hearts, I wonder if we think and we look and we see injustices in our world and we wonder about the Lord's waiting to bring his perfect kingdom. And I wonder if we think perhaps God has not got the best idea here. Could it be that God's patience in his justice, though, is actually a reflection of his mercy? And that his patience and his justice is a reflection of his mercy, not just to those who will receive it, but even to those who will never receive it. Does Abimelech ever ask for mercy from the Lord? Does he ever submit to the Lord? Not once. And yet, does the Lord give him opportunity to do that? He gives him 52 verses to do it. And he never does. It's amazing. And this is the mercy of God. He is patient even towards those who will never turn from him. Turn to him, pardon me. Perhaps the easiest diffuser of of falling into this trap of accusing God of being wrong in his patience comes when we consider his patience towards us. What do you have been right to bring us to a brutal end? Those of us who have not gone out and killed our 70 brothers, who have not burned down towers with a thousand people in it. Would God have been right to see our sin, and then just wipe us off the map entirely? Answer that. Would he have been right to do so? 
Yes, absolutely. Did he? I don't know. Are you breathing? He's being patient with you. This is amazing. In that, we have to rejoice. The true king of Israel, even when his subjects attempt to pull the throne out from under him, he remains patient in bringing justice. And even the justice that he's brought in these nine chapters so far have been for what purpose? I ask you, congregation. What is his purpose in the justice he's brought to Israel so far? Is it to destroy them and be done with them? It's another word that starts with D and rhymes with discipline. Yes, discipline, good. His purpose in his justice towards his people is to discipline them. And we know, again, multiple times from the book of Hebrews that a good father disciplines his children because he what? Loves them. He loves them. And so his discipline is a sign of his mercy and his patience and his justice is a good thing. Though we often groan in the pain of waiting on that justice, his patience is a good thing. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. A great thing as far as the patience of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ offers his patience to his people that in the fullness of time, he came and paid their debt. Why is it that he could be so patient with Israel for these nine chapters? Because he knew he would send Christ to pay the full penalty. Not just the discipline, but the wrath, the justice, the anger, the the good punishment that God ordains over sin is laid on Christ in the fullness of time. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If he's been patient with you regarding the justice for your sin, if you are going to walk in good faith and integrity, as Jotham calls us to in his little sermon, if we're going to do that, we need to do it by his spirit. And we must be patient regarding the justice of others. We know for the entirety of, of time, from since, the, since Cain killed his brother, all the evil things that have been done, we, we live in a world where injustices go unanswered so often and it makes us groan and we want to see justice happen we need to temper that with the mercy that god tempers his justice with as well we need to be merciful to those who deserve his justice because we also deserve his justice we need to rejoice that the lord has not rushed justice and so nor should we next his justice is planned It's designed in order to completely satisfy righteousness. And this is an important thing too. Starting at verse 22, we'll start to see this play out because this is the turning point, the big time jump in the chapter. But his justice is planned, meaning it's designed in order to completely satisfy righteousness. I said it again on purpose that time in case you're wondering. Because it wasn't enough. God God not only just said, I don't feel like punishing Abimelech at verse 1. I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to see what he can really do to stir up my wrath and anger. This is God's planned design to completely satisfy justice so that for all of eternity, all of his people can look to him and say, he is holy, 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 holy in his love, holy in his patience and his kindness and his mercy and in his justice. That there is not one act of injustice that will not be met by God's perfect righteousness. 
So coming to the second section, we have one of the most important verses in the chapter, and that is at verse 23. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. This verse shows us God's sovereign working through this ugly ordeal of the murder of Jotham's brothers. He is going to pay them back for what, is, what he has done. He has a design for how he will bring justice. And the first step is basically to incline Shechem and Abimelech to bring up the tension and treachery that is already there beneath the surface. This covenant that they've agreed upon together is not one that has been done in good faith and integrity. This has been done with selfish motivation and with self-driven purposes. And what is this evil spirit going to do? This is a very curious thing. Tim, thankfully, this morning has already preached this part for me that God can even work through evil. That's how great he is. That doesn't mean that he himself is evil. It means he's powerful. It means that, as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. If you remember the story of Job, it starts out with Satan somehow having access to heaven, being able to talk to the Lord. And he says, where have you gone? He says, I've been here and there all over the planet, all over the planet just wandering around. And God says, have you thought about Job before? And he says, well, yeah, I've thought about Job. Yeah, I know he's righteous, and he's only righteous because you give him good things. But if you take all that away, he's going to curse you to your face. And God says, bring it on. Job's my champion. Let's go. And it becomes like this gladiator match between Job and Satan. It's an awesome story. But it shows us the same thing that's going on here. God is able to say to an evil spirit, go and reveal the wickedness of hearts of men so that justice can be satisfied. That's my plan. Well, the men on the mountainside that are set for ambush are going to make Abimelech's hope of strengthening his rule very difficult. Three years would not have been enough time for him to extend his fist across the 12 tribes and grow his mafia. And this dysfunction is proof that his mafia is not under control at all. Then this guy Gaal comes in. He comes to Shechem in almost the same words that Abimelech said earlier. He comes as one who is the true Shechemite. In the drunkenness of idol worship and sensual harvest partying, he makes a very bramble bush promise just as Abimelech did. He calls him out. He says in verse 28, who's Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Isn't he the son of Jerubbaal? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. That makes sense, but why would we serve him? And then he says his, his big sentence in verse 29, would that these people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I'd say to his face, increase your army and come out probably stick his tongue out at him too. (laughs) So Zabul and Abimelech have a clever plan that sounds a lot like a Gideon maneuver. Split up your forces and do what I do, he says to them. Meanwhile, Zabul meets Gaal, who thinks he's seeing an army approaching from far away. And Zabul basically says, hey, you're seeing things. You're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see an army coming over the mountain. Gaal says, no, Zabul, I see it. There's a lot of people coming over there. And he says, okay, look. Let's put your muscle where your mouth is and take out Abimelech the way that you said you were going to the night before. And amazingly, Gaal's idea is to say, okay, I will. He gets double dog dared into it and he does it. And he's destroyed. He's completely wiped out. There's no hope at all of him beating Abimelech and his forces here. He's completely outmatched. His people flee. And Abimelech takes the hint that things aren't going so well between him and Shechem. So he moves to Aruma. Can you imagine that an act of injustice would bring about a great sense of unity and peace amongst the people who have covenanted together? 
that that should be the foundation of it? Let's go and murder 70 people and everything will work out well? Of course not. When the foundation of injustice is laid, there's only more sin that's going to come from that. Injustice is ugliest to us when it affects a large group of people. The victims of injustice cry out to the Lord to right the wrong, but what will he do? Has he been patient enough yet, is the cry of those who have been wronged. Is there a point where we say, this isn't patience, it's cruelty to the oppressed? What are the people of God to do when injustice runs rampant in a society? I promise you that we did not intend for Judges 9 and Micah to be talked about on the same Sunday. And the reason that I make a big point of that is because we're about to look at Micah 6, verse 8, which was read earlier today. And you need to know that, again, we did not plan this. And that has to mean that the Lord intended for us to look at these two books side by side today. That before I even really even thought about what Tim was teaching, Micah 6, 8 came to mind about the injustice of this chapter. And so Micah says to God's people, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Great, great passage. I think there's a Casting Crown song too. (laughs) Do justice. Let your actions be such that defend the oppressed, not take advantage of them. This is why Abimelech is a terrible king. Stand in the gap. Do justice. Love kindness. Go to the oppressed. Meet their needs if you can and reflect the kindness of the Lord. Walk humbly with your God. Don't become a cavalier Christian. You can't do the other two apart from his spirit. And we're not designed to do it on our own. We're designed to do it as the body of Christ, united as his church. Anything you do accomplish apart from faith and integrity of the people living under the covenant with the Lord is a good deed that will not last into eternity. There's a lot of groups and a lot of people out in the world right now that are trying to make things right but it will never last because it, like Abimelech's attempt at making things right in his own eyes, is built on a foundation of injustice. Because if we decide that we're going to make the world right apart from Christ, that is an injustice to what he suffered at the cross. It's an injustice because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm laying my life down freely for you. The father says to us, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And as he is risen today, alive and reigning over all things, if we think that we can join up with with others in the world who are trying to make things right, but are not doing it on the foundation of the gospel, then we are rejecting the most foundational truth of the universe. And that is an injustice. As Tim said earlier, I'm just going to keep blaming Tim for some of these things. Tim said that the injustice when we depart from the gospel and when we we give people what they want to hear, when we agree with everything on both sides, mind you, of whatever issue that you may be thinking of right now that I think we all know what we're thinking of, and I'm not going to say it. But when we reject God's word and when we reject the gospel and adhere to worldly systems, it's an injustice to God, first and foremost, because he gave his son, but it's also an injustice to others because we're saying, we don't need this, it's fine, all we need to do is whatever you guys want. That is injustice. And I lost my spot. All right. How do we, the the justice of the Lord is planned, and here's the deal, Christ is the plan 
The I'm sorry, the justice of the Lord is planned. I think I said injustice. The justice of the Lord is planned, and Christ is the plan. And you can imagine, if Christ is the plan, when it comes to the point where he ascends back to heaven and leaves his disciples, we could say, well, what are we supposed to do? So he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. The better thing than actually having Jesus sitting in the pews with us is that his Holy Spirit would reside inside of us and work through us to bring about the message of the justice that he has acquired at the cross. So Christ is the plan, and you are a part of that plan as well in his justice. The way we answer the injustices of our day is to proclaim Christ. If that is not our purpose in doing justice or loving kindness, then we are not acting on his plan. And we are actually, get this, even the good things that you may try to do apart from the Lord are being done against him. Because his plan is not to create utopia. His plan is to proclaim what Christ has done and he will bring the kingdom. He will build the kingdom. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. We see the marks of his sovereign plan. The first injustice was the murder of seven sons of Gideon on a rock. And ironically, another rock is going to be Abimelech's undoing very soon. Our proof of God's sovereign plan to bring justice to all evil has to do with a rock as well. And that's Matthew 21, verses 43 through 44 I want to direct you to. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Okay, so first thing here. We produce the fruits of the, of the kingdom, and that shows that we belong to it. That's pretty straightforward, I hope. Verse 44, the one who falls on this stone, it'll be Christ, by the way, the chief cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We must bear fruit that accords with the kingdom of God. Jotham would call us to the fruit that, is, that, that we are meant to bear as those of good faith and of integrity in Christ. Remember, you cannot produce whatever fruit you want. You produce fruit that corresponds to the seed that has been planted in the first place. An apple tree doesn't bear oranges. You get the illustration. We need to trust in him. We need to trust in his plan to bring about justice and make things right. The people who died in Shechem at the hand of Abimelech did not go to heaven and say, God, where were you? What's your problem? You saved Zotham, but you didn't save us. We were in the same scenario. When they saw the Lord face to face, they could only see a God who had things perfectly planned, even to every point of, of making things right. His justice is perfect. His justice is planned. We need to bear that fruit. We need to repent of the ways that we try to usurp the king, just like Abimelech. Don't villainize Abimelech so far away that you forget that the spirit of Abimelech is the same sin nature that we deal with day by day. We need to repent of our apathy towards injustice. We need to seek the spirit of the Lord to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God as we do justice, as we love kindness, and as we walk humbly with our God, the true King, Jesus Christ. Last, his justice is providential. That is that it displays God's active care for humanity. We see the plans of God's justice unfold in the climactic ending. Abimelech's rage and lust for power and for showing his power leads him to the city of Thebes. Again, he had already taken out Shechem. He had done all of that. He, didn't, he wasn't satisfied, though. He just wanted to kill some more people. There's no reason given in Judges chapter 9 for why Abimelech says, now Thebes gets theirs. 
His injustice is rampant and it's unchained and it seems that it has no end. He believes that he's going to see a repeat of his victory at Shechem. He has the same plan. He goes up to the front door ready to burn it down, just like he did at the tower at Shechem. His mafia is at its fullest strength. He's confident that his victory will be swift, and so he enacts the same plan. The citizens flee to the stronghold, and Abimelech comes to the front door with a torch ready to burn it down, and what he doesn't expect is, in fact, something that probably no one would have expected. No one would have walked up to that door and said, is there anybody with a millstone up there? Should I take a step back? No. Verse 53, this awesome irony of God's justice on the unjust. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Tim, that's enough to kill a guy, right? The story, okay, good. Because we have a moment here where he says to his armor bearer, I need you to go ahead and take your sword. To Sorry, the kids are here and this is judges. This is rough. He, he says, I need you to just go ahead and finish the job here so that nobody says that a woman killed me. That'd be really embarrassing. Well, we can all tell how well that worked out for him because we are mocking him right now as we read this story and realizing, sorry, your plan did not work. We know that it was not the sword that killed you. We know it was the millstone that fell on your head. This unexpected woman who becomes the hero combines some of the heroic attributes we've seen already in this book. She's unexpected, which is an understatement. She's a woman. We saw the hero of chapter 5 was Deborah as well. She bore an unusual yet highly effective weapon like Gideon's southpaw sword or Shamgar's ox goad. The kingless kingdom has even been judgeless during the, ages of, the age of Abimelech. And while she doesn't bear the title, she is clearly a sign of God's providential justice working on behalf of the people that he loves. Abimelech has his armor bearer boy run him through with a sword so that it wouldn't be said that he died under the assault of an unnamed woman with a grain grinding tool. It doesn't work out for him because we're still talking about it. When Abimelech fell, the mafia he had created completely dissipated. There was no point in their fighting anymore. Clearly their hope was in the Bramblebush King and with him gone, they would have to either recognize the sovereignty of God or look for another Bramblebush, which obviously that's what they're going for, the second. What do you do when you put the crown on your head and things fall apart? Do you return to the true king? Do you see his patient, planned, and providential justice and repent of your sin? Chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, come as a sort of epilogue for Abimelech's story. So God continued his grace to raise good judges as he did with Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Deborah, Shamgar. These two, Tola and Jair, stand as a sign of God's patience and plan for his people. You'll notice if you look at this that it doesn't say who was oppressing Israel when these judges came. There may be reason to believe that Israel had enough trouble with, himself, with, her, their, with themselves in this time anyway. The Lord's justice is providential because it, in acting out justice on Abimelech, he saved the people of Thebes from the fire of the bramble bush. How has he acted out his providence through justice for us? No more clearly and no more finally has the Lord providentially acted out his justice than at the cross. We talk about the love of God at the cross all the time. Sometimes we miss that it is also God's justice. When God turned his back from his son, he did not do so to close his ears off to the terrible thing that was happening. In his turning his back on his son, he allowed the waterfall of his wrath to be poured out 
on his only son. This is justice. What Christ endured, he endured for us that we might endure what we that we might not endure what we truly deserve. Christ's atonement to make us right with God has purchased for us the privilege of his Holy Spirit to work through us to call others to Christ, the only one who can truly bring justice. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There are a lot of issues in the world right now, and everybody wants to know your opinion so that they can know whether you are good or evil. And the truth is, is that Jesus did not give us a gospel that's going to agree with everyone that we talk to. Our goal in everything has to be reconciliation through the blood of Christ and no other. Everything that we become a part of, everything that we adhere to, everything that we say needs to lead up and build up to the truth of why we are truly the church. And that is because of Jesus. His intention, God's intention is to appeal through us to others to come to him. We don't live in a bunker waiting for the world to end. We are ambassadors for Christ. We go out to the world that is lost and implore them on behalf of Jesus who died for them and is risen that they be reconciled through that act. The answer for every injustice and for every argument and for every disagreement and everything that is going on right now is only and ever Jesus. So, God's grace is ultimately shown in the justice done to Christ for us. And the church is not a mafia following Abimelech or whoever we think should be in charge. We are the ambassadors of the one true king in a kingless kingdom, much like the book of Judges is the world we live in today. We are his ambassadors. You are the proof of his patient justice to the world. You are saved by the grace of Christ's blood, paying the penalty for sin at the fullness of time. You are a part of his plan for justice. Engage in the work of justice. Show the loving kindness of Christ to the oppressed and walk humbly with your God all along the way. As Tim said earlier again, we need to start with this humility before the Lord. What do we do in the world that we're living in right now? How do we carry conversations? How do we involve ourselves with the terrible things going on? Walk humbly with your Lord. Let that be the first step and let everything flow from that. Your working of justice, your love and kindness to the oppressed. We're meant to be tools of his providential justice in the world. We are that certain woman in the end of this story with a millstone in the stronghold. We are the unexpected with the unexpected tools in our hands. Not literally, don't take this that you need to go find some millstones and stop, start, you know, crushing some skulls. That's not the idea. But you do know the chief cornerstone and you must proclaim him to a world that is ravaged by and enraged by injustices. What a time for us to be alive and proclaim all that he has done and all things will eventually be made right through Christ. Don't get bogged down in the ways the world is trying to heal itself. Jesus died for anyone who will believe, and we are called to take that message to them today. One day he will make all things right. Justice will be satisfied, and no one will accuse him of failure to do the right thing. That will be a glorious day. 
That's what we're going to sing about now. One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day my beloved one bringing. My Savior Jesus is mine. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified me freely and forever. And one day he's coming on a glorious day. I have just a couple of questions for you as I ask the um, praise team to come back up and lead us in song. How will you walk in light of the patient, planned, and providential justice of King Jesus today and this week? Secondly, what do you need to submit to his kingship today? In looking at Abimelech's life, do you realize that maybe you are trying to fight and forcibly gain something that God does not have planned for you and that you need to give him his proper place in your heart? And lastly, are you ready to walk as an ambassador of Christ today? Is that your goal? Is that why you're here? Is that how we go out from this place? Let me pray for you and we'll sing one last song. Our Father, there are a lot of implications for what we've looked at today in the world that we live in. And I pray, Father, that you would make us bold ambassadors for you. And yet, that we would be mindful that your justice, though it seems far off, it, it is an example, it is a picture of your patience. Though your justice, though it seems so muddled and confused in this world right now, your justice is planned and it will come about perfectly. And Lord, though we often wonder, where is God in this or where is God in that? Why hasn't he acted? Why hasn't he spoken? You have spoken. You have acted decisively. And the plan and the purpose, the providence of your grace and your justice is that we proclaim what you have done over anything else. There's nothing greater that you could do than to give us your son on the cross and to bring him to life again and to raise us up with him. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us humility to walk with you. When we have conversations when people are angry about things going on, Lord, let us be the peacemakers. Let us be those ambassadors of the Prince of Peace who wants to show the great grace and love of Christ. Empower us for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.